as part of a larger research program, it's it's really useful to sort of go through lots of different ways of looking at life and think about where these ultimate limits are and then think about how to start to abstract them so that we can get beyond the particular evolutionary history that we've seen on this planet and think about biological function in general from either an alternate origins of life perspective or an astrobiological perspective. internal structure of bacteria is so different from the architecture of a nucleated cell? Why do some kinds of organisms stay small, whereas others grow to enormous size? What evolutionary challenges drove life's major transitions into producing more and more complex varieties? And what does studying these areas reveal about the changing landscape of our global economy? New research into the science of scale, how physics operates on systems of different sizes, reveals universal speed limits imposed on biology by the energy required to make or repair component parts. It explains the varying evolutionary pressures on organisms to reallocate resources and change their body plans as they grow. It helps to resolve fierce old debates about just how much contingent history limits a creature's future evolutionary options, and it illuminates how trade-offs in resiliency and efficiency constrain the strategies of animals and human institutions alike, favoring self-reliance in some contexts and cooperation in others. Scale helps us prune the tree of possibilities and understand what are and are not likely futures for this planet. We have a lot to learn from germs and insects. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute, the world's foremost complex system science research organization. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of researchers, rigorous scientists and mathematicians, philosophers and artists developing new frameworks, tools, and theories to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This is a show about your world and the people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining its emergent order, their stories, research, and insights. Join us for an adventure into complexity. Before we start, we'd like to inform you of upcoming opportunities with SFI. Applications are now open for the 2020 Graduate Workshop in Computational Social Science, the Global Sustainability Summer School, the Journalism Fellowship, and a number of staff and research positions. Learn more at santafe.edu. For transcripts, show notes, research links, and more, please visit complexity.simplecast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please help us reach a wider audience by leaving a review at Apple Podcasts or by sharing the show on social media. Thank you for listening. Well, Chris Kempis, it's a pleasure to have you actually back on a Complexity Podcast. Yeah, thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, I know that you were on episode two, which we recorded at IP Fest on Origins of Life, but it's nice to give you your own episode and to go and do your research with a lot more granularity. So before we dig into your papers, uh, I think the place to start is to talk a little bit about how you got into your work, uh, how you became a scientist or, or, you know, in whatever way you understand that, and, and then uh, how you ended up at SFI. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, many people point to childhood as a place where they develop certain types of interests, and that's definitely true for me. So as a kid, I was fascinated by both astronomy and paleontology. So I had this dual interest in, in the stars and in fossils, um, and both are pretty strong. And I don't know, there's always this sense in society that people are, you know, picking something to do, or they have like one very specific thing that they're, that they want to do someday. And so when people would ask me, what's the thing you wanted to do? I had this conflict of like, well, how do I take these two things I really love? So then eventually I'd say, I want to, you know, I want to be an astronomer and a paleontologist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and most people, most people really laughed at that. And uh, amazingly enough, that's sort of what I've done, you know, over my scientific career was is to 
combine biology and um, thinking about the history of life with questions of physics and um, astrobiology. And so uh, if you sort of take paleontology plus astronomy, I think you get life in space and the history of life and how physics guides all of that. So I think those early interests very much um, have stayed with me over the years. And so now you're, you're here and you're, you're working with uh, an excellent team on scaling laws and, and so on. And so, yeah, what drew you to SFI or like, how did SFI select you? <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's, that's another interesting question. So in undergrad, as I was still wrestling with this physics or biology question, um, I had done a lot of research in ecology while also majoring in physics. And so I sort of was looking for places where those two combined. And an early mentor pointed me towards a bunch of you know papers in scaling theory and how physics was influencing biology. And so I was hooked. I actually came to the Santa Fe Institute as an undergrad researcher a couple times during my undergrad career. Um, I spent a summer here. Uh, I did a, a month-long independent study as, as part of my curriculum at a different time. And then that really started to inform the types of research I did um, thereafter. And so uh, my PhD was in physical biology, um, which is a program that we created at MIT, focusing on how um, you could start to bring physics into different biological processes beyond simple things like protein folding, but really trying to get it at the macroscopic laws of biology. So um, things like scaling laws, combining that with evolutionary theory, and then the rest is, is sort of history after that. Yeah. Excellent. Well, okay. So uh, it seems like the place to start today is uh, with a 2012 PNAS paper that you lead authored on uh, growth metabolic partitioning and the size of microorganisms. So you did this with uh, Stephanie Dutkowitz, am I saying that right? And, and Michael Follows. And this is a piece comparing the, the way that uh, various energetic processes in a cell are allocated to, to growth and maintenance and how that differs between uh, prokaryotic organisms and eukaryotic organisms. So I'd like to have you start with a little bit about the background and the thinking that motivated this research, like why uh, you decided to go here and then... Um, this is a particular area of sort of surprising and counterintuitive results. And then we can kind of dive into the details of this particular study. Yeah, that sounds great. So, you know, some of the some of the classic work done in scaling theory is really trying to understand how architecture relates to various types of functions, primarily how it relates to metabolic functions and then how you can derive a bunch of other features from those metabolic functions. Um, so there's this strong architectural connection there. And so then if you think about it, you could say, well, as life, as you go down the scale of sort of size in life, you start to cross all these different architectural boundaries. So as you go to unicellular eukaryotes, obviously you're transitioning from a multicellular organism that may or may not have a vascular system to a unicellular organism, which definitely doesn't, isn't part of a, you know, a larger network of cells and in a vascular system is living as a free living cell in an environment, but still has some internal structure to it. Um, the mitochondria, the nucleus, um, various other internal membranes. And then as you go smaller, you cross over into bacteria, which lose a lot of the internal structure that you see um, in the unicellular eukaryotes. Um, now I've told that story as sort of the size-based way backwards, but that's actually the opposite of the evolutionary direction, which went from these simple bacterial cells to increasing um, complexity in architecture. So anyway, so we see these shifts in architecture. We know that architecture is sort of fundamentally related to uh, metabolic processes and, and deriving scaling laws, and so then we should expect to start seeing um, shifts in these relationships as you make these major transitions over architecture. And there was some empirical work um, just before we did this paper um, showing that to be the case um, and putting forward a few hypotheses about what's shifting in the architecture. And then we said, well, what happens if we take that and start to build detailed energetic theories of single-cell organisms in the same way that's been done for multicellular organisms to start trying to understand physiology and growth um, in connection to these, these shifts in scaling relationships driven by shifts in architecture? So starting with the per-unit cost thing about bio, biosynthesis and maintenance 
being conserved and linear across all these different groups, right? So, so what is the one thing, go into a little bit of detail about this, please, about the one thing that all of these different organisms have in common, and then how you were able to use that to start to investigate the differences and the the basis for those differences. Because, you know, that's, I think, uh, that's, yeah, that seems like a great place to start. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the really amazing things that we saw was how much energy it takes to maintain or repair an existing unit of material in an organism it appears to be roughly constant across all of life i mean there's a lot of there's a huge amount of variation in that but but there aren't systematic trends with size for example so this says that to keep a unit of bacterial mass alive um, in terms of repairing it and, and maintaining its existence is roughly the same as keeping a unit of mass in a in a mammal alive um, and so that's, we thought that was really interesting that there, there isn't an architectural shift there. Um, and then a lot of the biosynthetic terms, so how much energy it takes to manufacture a new unit of mass also appear to be roughly constant across all these different classes of organisms. Again, that's a, you know, a slight simplification of, of some significant variation that's there. And so if you take these two things together, then once you have these differences in how metabolic rate changes with size, uh, those constants... And this changing metabolic rate with size lead to these really different behaviors in the growth rates because that overall metabolism has to be broken down or partitioned into the energy you need to repair and, and keep existing biomass alive and the energy you can use then to synthesize new biomass. And so if as you get bigger, you get more metabolic power per unit mass, then you can grow faster and faster as you get larger. And that's what you see in bacteria. Um, if as you get bigger, you have less metabolism per unit mass, like in mammals, then eventually your growth rate has to slow down and you stop growing in size. And so contrasting bacteria to mammals, bac bacteria have this ever-increasing accelerating growth rate over their lifespan. Mammals have this decelerating life, you know, growth rate that eventually leads to a fixed adult size, um, like most humans have, for example. So this is uh, butting up against the episode that we did with Melanie Moses on on scaling um, in the question of why is it that you see if uh, why is it that you see this upper bound on the size of bacteria? Like there's there's a point at which it, it, the, the the metabolic rate required to grow that thing just becomes unsustainable, right? So that's the that's the transition uh, that like Lynn Margulis and other people are talking about uh, an endosymbiotic transition. So how does, how does the architecture of a nucleated complex cell enable this? And, and why does that lead to an inversion of this power law in the way that these, these uh, like metabolism and maintenance are allocated in a cell? Yeah. Good question. So we, we had exactly that same puzzle after finishing this first paper that we were just talking about. So as bacteria get bigger, they have more and more metabolic power per unit mass. They have faster and faster growth rates. All of that's, gr all of that's what you want. <laughs> so, so if you can grow faster than other organisms, you can outcompete them. These all seem like good things to have. And so our question was, well, why don't the bacteria continue to get bigger forever, right? Their architecture seems to favor this um, ever accelerating growth rate that in certain environments is really advantageous. You can outcompete slower growing things if there's enough resources around. Um, and so we sort of hypothesized in this paper that it must be something about some piece of the physiology not being able to keep up with those increasing metabolic rates. So it's actually not a metabolic problem that the largest bacteria run into. It, it's likely some sort of physiological problem where some basic biochemical rate or process simply can't keep up with, with the energy harvesting capacity of these organisms. Um, and so in a follow-up paper, looking at the composition um, of bacteria in terms of the main physiological features they have, so how much protein do they have, um, how many ribosomes do they have, which is really, are, are these machines that basically translate the stored information about what a cell is in the genome to the actual function, functional proteins of the cell, how many of those do they have, and we were able to write down some simple theories that show that as this growth rate increases, eventually you get to a point where to keep up with that rate, you would need to put more stuff in the cell than the cell has space for. So basically, they just the largest bacteria run out of physical space 
to pack in all the things they would need to keep up with this incre- this ever increasing rate. I mean, so it's sort of like if you had this huge power source, how many components would you need to you know to use that power efficiently? Eventually, um, that exceeds uh, how you know the space at which those can be packed into. And so that's that's what we think happens to bacteria is that they grow too quickly. They run out of the fundamental space for all the components they need to keep up with that fast growth rate. Um, and then there's something about the eukaryotic architecture that helps fix that. That's an unsolved problem, in my opinion. That has not um, been fully worked out. So how it is that eukaryotes then start having a slower metabolic rate with increasing size and why that then drives them to grow more slowly, I think there's a sort of fundamental question about why that's true. Um, and it may all be tuned to um, this speed limit. So we think that there might be sort of a, a universal speed limit in, in the growth rate enforced by these internal space constraints that are reached by the bacteria and then saturate for the unicellular eukaryotes and then start to do really weird things in the multicellulars, which is a whole other story that, that gets even harder. Right, right. I'm realizing now that I, I totally jumped ahead into the next paper with that question. Uh, but before we go there and dig into that a little bit more, yeah, yeah. there are a couple interesting points in this paper that I felt were worth sort of unpacking a bit. And then one of them is about uh, the reproductive strategies in eukaryotes, and specifically, you look at the budding yeast C. albicans, which you know, rather than just standard fission, is doing this this budding thing, and its growth rates are then sort of reallocated at different points between the growth of the mother cell and the you know the budding cells. And you make an interesting point in here that the growth of the buds, quote, uh, can be predicted by assuming that the bud is using all of the growth energy of the entire complex and that buds grow more rapidly because of the assistance of the entire complex rather than if these are growing in, in isolation. So this is, again, a spot where you're starting to get into questions of the incentives for multicellularity. And it just reminded me of, uh, as a sort of a personal link to this, the it takes a village to raise a child (laughs) thing. And like we were talking about uh, around the kitchen this morning about this issue of the economics of parenting. And like, this is a huge leap, but I'm curious how you feel this fits into the biophysics about as uh, sort of our quote unquote nuclear family becomes a more dominant form and and individual family groups are are, uh, more self-reliant and sort of more spread out it seems as though that may be somewhat to to do with the decline in uh, childbirth rates in like industrial Western countries like the United States over the last few decades. And like the increased self-reliance sort of assumed or required by the family and how that seems to be inversely related to like the productivity of a given family. I think there's an interesting a- analogy to draw there. So economists, several times, different economists have told me that you can sort of, in developed nations, understand decreased um, birth rates and how much longer people are waiting to have children in terms of sort of integrating when you think you have enough resources to provide a child with the same level of lifestyle that you have. <laughs> and, you know, as the world gets more complicated, that number may be harder to achieve. Now, I haven't, I haven't looked at any of those papers. I haven't seen what those calculations are, but that, that at least seems to be the word on the street from certain economists that that may be what's going on. And what's interesting here is that, you know, thinking about sort of the whole process of giving birth to young, you know, from mammals all the way up to then communities raising children, I think what's happening with these yeasts that's really interesting is it's it's almost a primitive gestation. And so what's cool about that is that when you have this big complex then devoting most of its metabolic energy to growing a small thing, it can make that thing look like it's growing, like it's a much bigger thing growing in terms of its growth rate because there's all of this energy being distributed from many cells into one small cell. And so if you fit the if you fit just that small cell without considering the whole complex, you'd say this thing has unbelievable energetic efficiency or it's somehow managing to get a huge amount of metabolic rate per that little mass. Um, and really what it is is sort of an optimization of choosing the complex choosing not to grow the larger cells but instead devote those me- that metabolic energy to growing small cells at a, at a really high rate. And so this sort of gestational strategy can, allow you, can help you produce lots of little offspring quickly. I mean, so it's sort of 
an interesting sort of community way to do that. Now, where that starts to maybe potentially relate to groups of things collectively raising offspring, I think uh, would be mostly about sort of where are the efficiencies of energy harvesting amongst a group then deployed to, um, you know, a set of collective children, or sort of how much risk are you incurring when it's a larger group, sharing resources composed to a very small group, um, you know, those would have very different risk dynamics. So you can imagine in certain, um, say, hunter-gatherer societies that these risks would be very different, whether it's, you know, a small group, one nuclear family, or a larger group um, collectively sharing things. And that certainly would relate to offspring and, and how um, how many individuals are, in effect, responsible for a, a particular offspring. There are plenty of other questions that come out of this particular piece, but I think that they relate just as well to the next article that you already touched on, which is evolutionary trade-offs in cellular composition across diverse bacteria. So this is just looking within uh, bacteria. This is a 2016 paper you did with Wang, Ammon, Doyle, and Polar. So this piece, like you said, this is about the way that different pieces of bacterial architecture scale as the whole thing gets bigger. And I think it's worth starting with this, actually starting at the end with this puzzle that you're left with, which is that even though, like you said a moment ago, the growth rate scales super linearly with the size of the bacterium, all of these components are scaling sublinearly. All of these components are scaling uh, slower. And so something funny is going on here that leads to this emergent thing happening here. And I'm curious, you know, this is this is sort of maybe like leading the the horse with the cart. But what is this? Why is this happening? It's not really a question you answer in this paper, but I mean you've had plenty of time to think about it. <laughs> well and and the answer is we still don't know. <laughs> yeah. There's some follow up work that we're doing now where we're trying to do certain types of sort of global optimizations of the physiology to understand what how all of these different components are related to each other. So one thing we can say really nicely from this paper is if you take so, – so the ribosome, which, again, is this, this little machine um, that basically takes uh, these little tapes, little transcripts from the DNA and turns those into functional proteins. So its job is you know, to read these tapes and, and produce proteins. Some of those proteins make itself up, so it's also sort of self-replicating itself. If you say we know how fast a cell is growing and we know how many proteins it has to replicate – um, in order to divide, then we have a really nice theory for how many ribosomes the cell needs. And so we take our theory for growth rate and we combine it with observations of how the number of proteins changed across cell size, and then we can predict how many of these little ribosomal machines you actually need in a cell. And that then does a very good job of predicting observed data. And it says that for most, most cell sizes, uh, most of the range of cell sizes, you have this sublinear scaling in the number of ribosomes. So as the cell's getting bigger, the ribosomes are sort of diluting out until you start to get towards really large cell sizes where the growth rates continue to go up. And then you get this rapid curvature and eventually this, this asymptotic behavior where the number of ribosomes that you would need to put in the cell sort of goes off to, towards infinity. And what you start to run up against there is the cell division time starts to look like the time it takes for a ribosome to replicate itself. So you have these little machines that are doing replication inside the cell. The cell doesn't notice that replication time scale until it's trying to divide or replicate at the same in you know in the same time that one of these little machines are and then it starts to run into all these problems. And so that's that's is this speed limit is this ribosome replication rate and when the cell rates start to approach that. That that's sort of one of several um, ultimate speed limits on life. And so we understand that well. We understand why that eventually becomes, a, you know, all of cell volume are, are just these ribosomes. Uh, how all the other parts of the physiology are changing, there are lots of interesting scaling relationships there, all with really different exponents, all with hard to, you know, hard to interpret exponents at first glance. Um, and so we, we're building a more detailed theory to try and get at those, but fundamentally we, we don't know yet. So you just explain in detail what you call in the paper the ribosome catastrophe. So this is this sort of larger class of what you know the error catastrophe. I learned about in college and actually is what got me into complexity thinking in the first place was 
this paper co-authored by Martin Nowak and, and now SFI president David Krakauer on the evolution of syntax and language. And, you know, so I think there's, there's a really interesting generalization that I think can be made from this math that gets into, uh, I, don't wanna, I wanna see if you feel like I'm making the analogy correctly, that uh, the DNA of a given bacterium is, is sort of like the memory of an individual person. And then the ribosomal volume is sort of like the amount of words required to communicate that are like uh, evolutionarily relevant in, in, a, in a given language. I mean, again, that's, that's a little messy because it's not exactly inter intercellular signaling, but there is this sense at which, uh, as, as Noah and, and Krakauer mentioned in their work, uh, that you reach a point where the burden on memory to remember every word you need to in order to get along in the world is un unfeasible. And you start getting uh, copying errors and you fail to communicate. And so that's the point at which, that, that seems to be the point at which you start getting syntax and language the way that you're getting uh, complexity of eukaryotic cell that it that there's you know a new syntactic architecture emerges to cope with the the informational requirements of this i mean is that i mean that's again that's a little rough but yeah no i, I think i think there's some really interesting interconnections there so i think you know on on this sort of end of the ribosome using this language analogy i think what you would say is that there's a you know there's a storage system of of the words that you could speak <laughs> and then spoken words have utility. And then there's this process in between that allows you to go from the words that you could speak to um, actually be actually vocalizing those words. Right. And that takes, there's some computational effort there that's required. So you have to, um, in this case, transcribe and translate the copied word to the spoken word. And there's a little device, this ribosome that does that. Um, and so if you think about the organism's pressure is all at speaking words, right? So having the spoken words out in the world where they actually have utility, then, yeah, the, one of the constraints for cells is how fast this internal machine can actually speak, right? How fast it can transcribe, transcribe and then translate um, as a system. And eventually, sort of the rate at which you would need utility from words exceeds exceeds that speaking capacity and so i think that i think that is another sort of limit but uh, yeah i mean i think in this space there are lots of really interesting biological limits the air catastrophe is certain one certainly one um this ribosomal catastrophe is one and i think as part of a larger research program it's it's really useful to sort of go through lots of different ways of looking at life and think about where these ultimate limits are and then think about how to start to abstract them um, so that we can get beyond you know, the particular evolutionary history that we've seen on this planet and think about biological function in general from either an alternate origins of life perspective or an astrobiological perspective. And that's actually something that David Krakauer and I have been, have been thinking about and writing about a lot recently. Um, so I think, yeah, there's really interesting intersections between these different types of limits and between these different types of abstracted processes in biology. So to sort of verge on the astrobiological question, uh, one of the things that you, you mentioned earlier is that there is this, this sort of cup shape in the fraction of the dry volume of the cell that's taken up by ribosomal material. And so you end up with, you know, you know what is uh, in the sort of middle zone that, you know, what is, what is taking up the volume of the cell, if not dry volume. And uh, you, you talk like uh, in a lot of cases, it's water, right? So it's, it, you know, as a sort of right-brained artist type, I was like, oh, that's kind of funny because the graph, it, you know, it looks as though it's like holding like a, a vessel for this, this kind of thing. So if only we thought to say that in the paper, <laughs> you start to uh, speculate here on the evolutionary benefits of less of the cell being taken up by stuff and more of it being available for, for fluids. And I'm curious to hear about this and then how this links to why you're going to find cells of different sizes occupying different niches and in different environments, and then how that might uh, yield uh, some predictions about 
where you're going to find very small cells, where you're going to find very large cells, and so on. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it's fascinating. So one of one of the things we've been thinking very hard about is is this water a requirement, right? And so part of what having an increasing amount of water to all these different molecules does for you is change the sort of effective diffusivities. So how fast, you know, how fast something can diffuse in the cell depends a lot on sort of what the concentration of things in water are, because that will adjust how likely you are to bump into another molecule or um, have sort of a, a short time scale, weak bonding um, event with another molecule. And so we, so we think actually we might be able to, to predict how much water you need um, thinking about these diffusive constraints. So, you know, that's, that's part of this, this kind of upcoming work um, that we've been going through is, is getting at that. Now, to your question about different niches and where these different organisms might live, you know, we, in this paper, were slightly wrong about a pretty strong prediction we made, which was saying, okay, what will all the smallest cells look like? Another way to think about that is, what does a cell have to do to get very small? Well, it needs to have less proteins expressed inside the cell. It needs to have a smaller genome, all these sorts of things. So, so how do you start to reduce a genome? How do you start to get rid of genes and the need for certain expressed proteins? Well, a lot of genes are kept around for dealing with lots of different types of environments, um, having lots of different metabolic options available to you and so forth. And so we looked at a lot of the smallest cells at the time and said, so, well, you know, most of these are mammalian parasites. And so what is being in, what is being a parasite inside a mammal do for you? Well, you have incredibly constant temperature. You have incredibly constant pH relative to other environments. You have this soup of amino acids around that you can use. So these organisms, in some cases, don't even need to synthesize their own amino acids, right? They can just suck them up from the environment. And so you get these incredibly small, slow-growing mammalian parasites that have tiny genomes and almost no stuff inside because they can rely on this incredibly rich and stable environment from a host. Cool. So, we, so I, at the time, would have said I expect all the smallest cells in the future to be sort of parasitic organisms that you see. A few years later... Jill Banfield's group discovered the new world record holding smallest set of bacteria. And they're all groundwater microbes. <laughs> so they discovered them in this groundwater system. Not in some not in another organism, not parasitic, you know, not not stable. And what's interesting is that a lot of the work um so while while those bacteria agree uh with us in terms of how how big they are, they didn't agree in terms of the types of environments we expected to find them. What's interesting is that a lot of her recent work out of the Banfield group is showing that it may be the case that many of those smallest bacteria are living in close association with bit larger bacteria. So they may either be syntrophic, meaning that there's some sort of mutualistic co-metabolism where the, the small ones and the big ones are helping each other in some way, or they could be parasitic. We don't know. Um, and so that's an interesting thing to follow up is what have they done to get such small genomes? And at an abstract level, it sort of is consistent with this idea of a parasite in terms of if you want to get a small genome, you have to start living in a more complicated community. Uh, that community could be you as a, as a completely negative parasite on some host, or it could be you as either a beneficial or negative symbiont living with you know, some other community of bacteria. So a lot, a lot more really interesting things to follow up there. So to abstract that even further, uh, you know, I, I think a lot about the, you know, the modern human brain case is like smaller than the Neanderthal brain case, or I have, I've heard also like even Cro-Magnon brain case. And so this seems to be sort of, you know, related to the issue of, uh, outboard memory again, and and the way that we are externally st storing the necessary information required for uh, human group selection and collective computation, that there was like a transitional point where the uh, the emphasis left the individual and tr and moved to groups of people, and now we're at this point where I remember uh, David Krakauer gave a, an Action Network talk. In New York a while back at, at UBS talking about uh, 
technology and the vestigial human brain and kind of comparing our evolutionary future to like tunicates, which, you know, at some point like lose, like they, they decephalize, you know, it's no longer <laughs> required because they're just filter feeding, you know, which ties into this related thing that I've been thinking about, which is how group life in some cases, you know, yields a clam, you know, where you're, you're just sort of positioning yourself in a flow of nutrients and in other cases yields like schools of fish, which yields, you know, like a smarter uh, collective. And, you know, to, to bring this back into economics a little more, this gets into questions about the uh, emergence of the city, you know, and the, the emergence of the nation state and how these kinds of concerns that you're addressing in this paper start to get into, like, like with the ribosome, like there are functional limits to the length of a sustainable supply chain and, you know, at, at like a minimum size for a nation and a maximum size for a nation. So like here we are, uh, you know, in 2020 and it's starting to look like uh, certain sort of first level analysis of global economic activity is woefully inadequate. And that certain economic processes are better at a global scale and others are are worse. So I'm I'm curious, you know, if if you're willing to go out on a limb here, like do you think, you know, I, I know uh in uh, his novel Bluebeard, Kurt Vonnegut said, you know, any country larger than Denmark is a damned fool's mistake. And I you know, so I'm you know, I wonder if if you think any kind of meaningful analogies can be drawn here that point us in, in a direction that yields fruitful shifts in economic policy or, uh, it, 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 you know, to maybe take on a humbler goal, uh, gives us sort of concrete, realistic predictions for, uh, you know, what it's going to mean to be a human being in the years to come. I don't know. Is that, it's <laughs> yeah. like absurd breadth there, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, there's some that inter, you know, that interconnects with a lot of classic ideas in evolution and ecology. Um, and I'd say one of the simplest sort of evolutionary ideas that we might think about from, say, bacterial ecology would be, okay, so if I maintain a huge genome with lots of different metabolic possibilities and all sorts of different genes for responding to particular environments and so forth, that's great, right? I as a single species have this capacity to be resilient in and respond to a huge range of uh, stresses from the environment. But I also have the cost of maintaining all of those genes, right? So um, there, every gene comes with some amount of overhead. So if I want to replicate that gene into the next generation, I spend energy on replicating it. If I want to make sure that that gene isn't getting damaged, I, I spend energy repairing it. If it accidentally gets turned into a protein that I don't want, I have to respond to that and get rid of that protein, right? There's all of these different challenges to having larger genomes. And um, there's some really nice recent work on, on sort of thinking about the cost of maintaining genes, you know, amongst a, a small community of people. We've talked about it a little bit. Uh, Michael Lynch at ASU um, has talked about it some. Nick Lane and, and Bill Martin have talked about it some. So I think there is this really nice sort of growing field of of ways of thinking about those costs and and how they relate to to evolutionary dynamics. So that's one end of the spectrum, right? I, but I, you know, I have to be able to maintain the cost of this huge genome. And any time that that cost is greater than the sort of benefit I get out of it, there's an evolutionary pressure for me to get rid of these genes. Great. Other end of the spectrum is I have a tiny genome, and I rely on a diverse, you know, ecology to sort of help me <laughs> do all the things I need to do or survive, right? And that's great because now each individual organism has this amazing efficiency because they have small genomes. They're just doing what they need to do. They rely on other organisms for different types of um, exchanges. Great. That, that may be more efficient, but it's also fairly susceptible to perturbations, right? So for that to work, I need to be able to rely on seeing those same partners of organisms in the future, right? So one easy way to do that is to create such close associations that every time we divide in our transporter, we go somewhere else together as, you know, sort of like a clonal organism. And we've worked some on that, but you need to sort of guarantee that you're going to see the same partners in the future. And so you sacrifice sort of resiliency for efficiency. And then the problem becomes sort of likelihood of, of interaction and exchange in the future. 
Now, how those ideas all get scaled up to the global economy um, and certain questions about um, size and efficiency, what happens in groups of people um, in cities, I think there's a, there's a huge richness in, in that biological thinking that can be translated um, into those spaces. It's not something I already know a huge amount about. I mean, just it seems like one sort of concrete example would be the way that you have entire cities in China devoted to manufacturing a particular good. And then, you know, how dependent those cities are on a thriving global economy. And it's sort of related to that issue of, you know, when I was in, in uh, school for paleontology, they, you know, the the takeaway about how to survive a mass extinction was, you know, you don't specialize you know that if you if you want to survive that you be a you're, that you become a generalist and so that's where you get into these you know the sort of survivalist thinking of people that that move out of food deserts and start you know growing their own food and learning these strategies and so on but then again like you just said that doesn't seem as like the amount of time it takes to learn those life skills is just absurd if you're going to participate in the modern economy. And so, you know, this work all sort of points to uh, a kind of like generalized balance between at what, at what scale are you, are you going to uh, operate, you know, like obviously uh, a Mennonite community is more resilient to global economic shutdown, but um, less, you know, less capable of producing something that is of value to that and then you know less capable of individually specializing and in some weird sort of uh in, you know in the sense of like uh like maslow self-actualization like i mean i gotta be careful here but it does seem like we are empowered to pursue hyper specialization uh by the same uh biophysical constraints that uh make this planet more and more susceptible to perturbations. And, you know, like we talked about that with Matt Jackson in terms of uh, hyper-connected bank networks and like cascading failures and so on. So, yeah, you know, and I think, I think a lot of this touches on these really classic economic ideas of um, specialization and efficiency. I think it's, it's interesting that even in just the evolution of particular genomes and bacteria, you see the same sort of thing. So this seems like a great point. Like we're already here, basically, uh, in the last paper I want to touch on with you, which is the paper you wrote with uh, M.A.R. Cole and Jeff West on it's. This is in Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution on the scales that limit the physical boundaries of evolution. And this is this is really cool because this is where we zoom out from microbial life and uh, you know like unicellular stuff to trying to articulate a more general theory of evolution and to, to bring the biophysical constraints into the picture. And so like, like I asked with the first one, I think it's important to understand how the approach that you authors are working towards in this paper differs from the legacy thinking about evolutionary dynamics that we've inherited up to this point and why it's important to bring these new considerations into the, into the picture here. Yeah. So I think, I think a lot of, classic thinking um, in evolutionary history, especially thinking about um, comparative life history and, and so forth, has very much seen the amazing complexity of individual species as the product of very detailed evolutionary histories um, with a lot of contingency and path dependency and, and happenstance, um, all of which is true, that leads to very specialized species living in a particular niche that can only really be understood in terms of this complicated history. And that's all valid. And a lot of that has been documented, you know, the sort of, you know, how much of that is just random processes, how much you get locked into things, how much contingency there is. Um, but what we wanted to try and say is, well, all of that is happening um, in a physical world. And so that physical world has sort of known constraints. And those constraints could either be really close to a physical law, something like diffusion, or they could be sort of physical laws that have downstream effects in terms of, of forming some particular environment. Um, and so we want to say is really how much of evolution can be explained by thinking about those physical constraints first. When do those physical constraints matter more than all these other processes? Um, and how do we just start to think about all of that? And so we, we wrote down a framework really for interpreting when evolution should see a physical constraint, when these other processes are more important, 
and how you know you're looking at the right physical constraint for understanding a particular organism. And so scaling laws are a great example. So why, you know, why do you see a scaling law across all organisms of vastly different size? A lot of the work coming out of, you know, the scaling world is really saying, and, and what we really try and argue in this paper is that you see those scaling laws when there's a dominant physical constraint that applies to organisms of vastly um, different size. And that constraint matters enough uh, compared to other processes that it shows up in evolution. Or that constraint is independent enough of all the other processes that it shows up um, in evolution. And so, you know, the, some of the simplest early thinking about predicting scaling laws is saying, well, if you imagine a spherical cell, and if that spherical cell is just passively living in a, in a bit of fluid, then it's going to have some resource supply rate that is just diffusing to it. And from the laws of diffusion, you can, you can derive the, um, the limitations of, of resource supply to that cell and sort of get a maximum metabolic rate. And that gives rise to a really nice scaling law. Now, that's all fine unless some of those features have many constraints they interact with or if there's some internal contingent limitation based on other parts of the physiology. So, for example, you might want to optimize some part of a mammal to, um, you know, to dealing with, say, mechanical stress given its size and, and the gravitation of, of a planet but you can't quite achieve the optimal because there's some um, historical part of the physiology that you would need to change to do that. And it's just too hard to change that. Or every step, every small step you would take in that um, change space comes with such a big cost that, that you can't sort of escape this thing. And so you, you can't actually optimize some part of the physiology. Um, and so that's, that's just a really then easy way to sort of ask, whether you think something's going to be completely driven by physical constraints or whether the optimization that evolution is doing through this random search process is best understood from the existing set of things you have and how they interact. Um, and we argue it mostly comes down to how big an effect does, does the physical constraint have. So, so if you change the trait a little bit, given under some physical law, how much does that change your growth rate? If that's big enough, evolution will see it, um, and you'll you'll be able to start optimizing that physical constraint. And how independent is that optimization from all of the other traits of an organism? And so we argue since you see lots of scaling laws that can be interpreted in terms of a few physical constraints, it seems like lots of evolution has parts of physiology, parts of the organism's traits that are independent enough or that the physical constraint is dominant enough um, that it shows up in evolution. And we think that's really exciting. So it seems like, you know, for those uh, who want to anchor this in the existing argument, or it seems like this is a way of resolving the classic Stephen Jay Gould, Simon Conway Morris argument. Like you were saying, it's it's contingency versus convergence. And you're saying, well, uh, path dependency matters given the degree to which the constraints are actually in operation on an organism. You know, you, you end up with a way to uh, rigorously and, and, and uh, quantitatively answer questions like, why is it that the golden age of mammals around 50 million years ago looks so very much like the golden age of dinosaurs with all of these, these similar niches occupied and comparable temperature and oxygen levels in the atmosphere and so on. But, you know, the, the, the substantial differences are, are due again to, you know, that, that contingent evolutionary history that each of these groups has to proceed from, right? So right. you give some really cool examples in this paper. One of them is on the bio biomechanical constraints of an insect leg and the size of insects and like why we're not going to get uh, them, you know, like giant, giant ant stuff. And we discussed this with Melanie Moses uh, around the issue of vascularization and nutrient delivery in in insects. But uh, you, you take a different approach and you look at sort of uh, structural strengths and the like the architecture of insect exoskeletons and uh, of their musculature. So I'd love to hear you uh, unpack that a little bit because this was, yeah, this is a really, a really cool consideration when you're looking at like something like a Hercules beetle and you're like, damn, that's a big thing, but it's not going to get any bigger. And why? Yeah. So, so Mimi Cole, um, 
did a lot of this work, uh, almost all of this work for this paper, um, in terms of thinking about these biophysical constraints in insects. And so from a, from a very top level, what I would say is, and we had a lot of conversations about this as a group internally, is that part of this is where the contingency does come into play, right? So once you're committed to a particular body plan or a particular uh, set of structures um, or physiological traits, biomechanical traits, then then the optimizations occur, the evolutionary optimizations, again, random process over time, that's how the optimization is happening. Those occur contingent on having a particular structure or body plan. Um, and so the constraints that are going to be optimized for an exoskeleton um, and the types of things you have to put into your evolutionary optimization problem there are, is very different than an endoskeleton, right? So if you have an, an internal uh, skeleton like mammals, you're going to face sort of different optimization challenges than if you have uh, an exoskeleton. And so I think that's a lot of what we wanted to think through. And so that's actually where some of the contingency comes through is that you have to condition on knowing a particular structure of an organism. The one example that I, I really appreciated was that, you know, molting seems to limit the size of arthropods because everything has to reattach and so there's, there's like a, a vulnerable phase there. Yeah. I th and I thought that was one of the most interesting examples, right? That, that because of this need to molt to get larger, you enter a phase of extreme predation risk <laughs> relative to, to pre-molt, you know, that then starts to interface with a bunch of, of niche considerations, behavioral strategies, right? Do you hide, just after you've molted, um, you know, how do you deal with some of those, those challenges? And so I think, you know, on one end of the spectrum, this is where we have, you know, this purely biophysical perspective. And on the other hand, you have to think about sort of the richness of interacting features. And that's really what we we're trying to get after in this paper is how do you do both, right? How do you start to separate out the purely biophysical optimizations you do for an organism and then all of these other rich consider considerations about behavior and niche and evolutionary history and, and so forth. So I think the, the molting is a nice example of that. So just to get into the like speculative biology here, some of these constraints lead to uh, the transition point at which you start to see sociality in, in insects. And then similarly, uh, different constraints seem to lead to sociality in uh, endoskeletal vertebrate organisms and you get a breakdown where it goes from you know a quote-unquote like solid brain as a computational entity to a liquid brain i'm curious what constraints would have to be lifted mechanically in order to offer a much much larger individual organism than anything that we see on the planet today and then in terms of design, you know, bioengineering new forms of life, you know, for other worlds. I mean, obviously gravity is a constraint, available free energy is a constraint, but like what within the organism itself do you see as something that could be changed on Earth's surface to yield like a Godzilla <laughs> type creature, you know, something that's vastly larger than anything we see in the fossil record or alive today? Yeah, so I, uh, many answers to that. Um, I mean, Changing gravity is the, the cop-out. Um, it's true, but, you know, it, that's sort of the easy one. Um, choosing to put everything in a liquid medium is another thing you could do to make really large organisms. And, you know, we do see, yes, yeah, so, so that, that would be one possibility. But I think from this sort of this more general question of, okay, if you, if you wanted something with a particular function of endlessly increasing size or as big as, you know, covering a planet or something like that, you know, what are the challenges? So if you wanted some sort of brain spanning an entire planet. What are the challenges there? I mean, I think a lot of the, you know, principles that start to come out and thinking about that are questions of transport, right? So just exchange. So if you have lots of individual components doing simple computations, how do you wire all those together? Melanie Moses has done a lot of work on that and thinking about um, chip architecture and, you know, certain scaling laws there. So that certainly becomes a challenge in, in terms of how do you wire all these things together? How do you get information from A to B and at what time scale? So then there's a rate question for the overall system. And then there's there's an energy flux question. And so I think, you know, there are calculable sort of questions about what would be the maximum number of 
bits you could what you know what's the what's the maximum computation rate of a planetary surface given solar flux right i think that's that's a calculable thing um if you make some some assumptions about different types of architecture and then start to work through the kind of um, exchange problems and so forth now maybe not if in terms of how complicated you know the algorithms would need to be or you know there might be a whole um algorithms combined with architecture optimization there that uh, i don't know if there's an answer to so but i think yeah the, in terms of the things you want to relax you also want to relax competition because a lot of the things that you would do optimally you can't if there are other species competing against you so you know having a small mobile brain inside a skull that can easily run is a is a nice way to protect that brain from predators but if you don't have any predators then you can start to do all sorts of things with your morphology you wouldn't have to otherwise and we talked about that a little bit with the insect case right that certain things that you decide to do are all about predator evasion right they're not they're not what's uh, most efficient for slow speed locomotion they're all set so that i don't get eaten when a predator comes right and so it's you know i'll sacrifice a little bit of day-to-day -day efficiency as long as i can you know evade a predator so those are part of the constraints are actually the ecological contingencies so this seems to tie into and i i hate to say this but it it seems to lend some credence to predictions made by people like Nick Bostrom that the future of the biosphere is a singleton. It's just like one giant creature that is uh, in competition with nothing. I mean, that's that's been a, a prognostication of various troubled legacies of evolutionary thinkers like Teilhard de Chardin for decades. But it sounds like you think that may hold some water. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, a, a few counterpoints to that one would be i think it's uh it's a possible evolutionary endpoint i would say the challenge of exterminating all bacteria <laughs> uh is daunting yeah. right i mean the the number of environments you find bacteria living in how deep in the subsurface active bacteria are found how long that seems to have been going from lots of recent cores people have done of you know finding all sorts of different fossils uh, microbial fossils, you know, I, I would say they're likely to always be around. You know, the task of getting rid of all bacteria is, it, to me, almost seems impossible. So whether that's bacteria and a singleton, <laughs> you know, that, that to me seems like a more likely endpoint than just, just a singleton. Also, getting to a singleton, I just don't know how stable certain trajectories towards that actually are, right? So, um, you know, I, I don't know how stable a species like ours is, right, in terms of all the hurdles that would need to be overcome to go that direction, all of the various ethical and aesthetic considerations we might make in the future about what kind of ecology we want, um, you know, may, that may not necessarily be um, the end point. And, and also, yeah, you have to always think about anytime you have a singleton, what's the, what's the likelihood of something invading? Um, and, if a singleton goes for a long time without competitors, it may start to optimize itself for efficiency in ways that make it very susceptible to invaders. And then the question is just, is there an invader? You know, is there another species around that can start to invade in that niche? Um, and that that is likely to be true, especially if there's, you know, a huge seed population of bacteria around or, um, yeah. So I think, I don't know how, how either likely or stable a singleton is. Um, I see lots of problems for it, but yeah. To wrap that back around to the the earlier pieces of this conversation, it, it, it seems as though really like a, a singleton would presuppose or evoke the same kind of challenges that you get into with these limits to cell size. And that you, you know, it may be that what we're talking about is not some sort of hypothetical future, but actually the, again, the the viability of a global economy and, and why it seems like we're under such pressure now simultaneously to try and and integrate all of these different local economies at the same time that we are casting our glance to other worlds you know to invoke again the you know interplanetary festival thing maybe the answer is uh multicellularity and that you know it's not that really you know this kind of thing isn't isn't feasible uh, like you know like you said it's it's too complicated it's too vulnerable, you know, without the competition. It, yeah. Anyway, 
Yeah, and I think I mean I think the other thing to point out there too that's that's really interesting is that many of the evolutionary transitions that we've seen haven't eliminated the life that they evolved from, which is really interesting. You know, so bacteria and archaea become unicellular eukaryotes. They aren't then outcompeted by unicellular eukaryotes, right? And in the same size ranges, because they do have some overlap in size, they live in you know they can live in the same environments. You know, there's there's coexist and you know there's coexistence of these these very diverse things. Multicellulars don't outcompete the unicellulars. You know, you get a coexistence, and so I think that's a it's a really interesting thing that even with these radical shifts in architecture and huge transitions in evolution, they don't then exclude everything that came before. In some cases. So we are the microbiome of civilization. That's like roughly speaking. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so uh, <laughs> thanks for indulging all that. Uh, what's, what's uh, next for you? Like wh where is this research taking you now and what are you working on? Yeah. I mean, I'd say sort of a few main directions. One is as we start to understand these different physical constraints and, and what they mean for, for organisms and um, scaling laws, how much can we start to then generalize or abstract that to think about life that's not like the one we already have? Can we generalize some of those ideas so that we get away from exactly the physiology of all known organisms that we have and start to think about life in general, um, which I'm interested in both for astrobiological questions and also origins of life questions. So I think that's sort of one program. Another program is is really thinking about continuing to connect biophysics and evolution together. I and mean, so there's lots of people now starting to work on this in lots of interesting ways. There's, you know, a really interesting classic literature on all of this. And so I think that's another, you know, really interesting direction to go is to say, you know, we have this huge body of evolutionary theory. Um, we're now starting to see where the physical constraints come in. How do we start to put all that together to get uh, more predictive power, um, more universal theories of, of biology? Wonderful. Chris Campus, it's a, always a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Where would you tell people to follow up if they're interested in this kind of stuff? Ah, um, I don't have a great answer for that. <laughs> I mean, obviously, yeah. they could go to the SFI website and yeah, look up you and Jeff West. Was, and, yeah. You know, follow the SFI Twitter. You know, I think that's, yeah. Awesome. where it's all happening. David Krakauer and I have a paper that hopefully will be coming out soon. And so there's yeah, lots of interesting, you know, more on this sort of generalizing life question. So yeah, lots of, lots of things coming soon. Wonderful. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.